Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I have a wonderful guest here today, uh, Nilda Palacios. Thank you so much for being here. Um, she is a community health worker in the Bay Area. She's also a student at UC Berkeley. It's a great school, by the way. And she's majoring in sociology. Uh, she's an ex-offender who spent 17 years in prison. And she, her story has been featured. She has an amazing story, amazing life story that we're going to hear about today. And she's been featured in the magazines Mother's Jones. She's also been featured in, in the New York Times and on a podcast, Two Sisters on a Journey. Thank you so much for being here today, Nelda. You're welcome. And it's a pleasure for me to share my story with you again, Martin. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can absolutely hear you. Yes, yes, yes. You're good to go. You're good to go. If you want to speak a little louder, you can too. But thank you so much. And before I start, I just want to make sure that uh, we're going to be discussing some stuff about domestic violence. So if there's any listeners, listeners out there that might be sensitive to that and it, don't feel comfortable with it, with it then I um, just want to let you know that uh, we'll be speaking about some of those issues today. But, um, but Nilda, I always start off this way. Um, you know, where were you born and raised? I was born in L.A., and all my life there, that's all I knew. You know, I was uh, raised by my mother, who um, at the time was a single parent. And um, L.A. South Central. And um, pretty much that's all I knew. <laughs> never been to San Francisco. Never knew anything about the Bay Area until later on. And what was your what was it life like growing up? Was it just you and your mom? So, um, no, actually, um, at first when I was like maybe 16 months year old, um, my mom was a single parent. My father had left her and he left with the babysitter. And then later on, she kind of was on her own and she had to raise me. She found a babysitter. So she had to like find two jobs to kind of like raise me. By then, um, when I turned seven years old, um, I didn't know I had a brother. He lived in a different country. So she brought him from Guatemala and then it, he shows up and I'm like now a newborn and he's kind of like in, integrated in my life. And eventually my mom finds herself at a boyfriend and he's in the picture. And then eventually um, my mom finds herself pregnant again with a third child. And that's when um, my youngest sister is born. And now it's three of us at a home. And by now my mom is um, using alcohol and spending more parties on the weekends. And it's all three siblings. And we're basically always constantly having more people in and out of the home. And to me, it was just like the norm, having parties, people in and out of the house. But by now, there's something more uh, that I'm getting older. I'm nine years old and I'm becoming more exposed to men in and out of the life. And my mother isn't really she's emotionally absent so she's really not present as much so i'm being more parent guided by these strange people in my life and so there's a lot of neglect as like the role model of a parent figure so more uh, sexual abuse is being exposed to me as a child 
Um, and at first I'm thinking maybe I should talk to my mama about it, you know, telling her like um, when she leaves, I'm being um, sort of like um, molested by my, my uncle. And um, as a mother, I think that she didn't really open up to me about some things that she was going as a child herself. So she kind of like brushed it under the rug and she tried to address the issue herself. Um, but back in those years, parents didn't really like address stuff like that. So they didn't, she tried to do the best that she could and try to handle it herself. Well, um, I felt like I was being very um, not heard. My voices wasn't really heard and acknowledged. So, um, instead of like listening to my issue about being a uh, being molested with my uncle my mother decided to um help my uncle and sort of like pushing him away and telling him that he needed to go but he never really got convicted or charged for any of the um the situation that was happening at home so I didn't see anything happening afterwards. It was more like they helped them sort of just leave. And my voice wasn't like acknowledged. It was like, you know, what kind of attention do you want? You know, you're more just, you're a child. You're, you're, you're looking for this type of attention. You need to stop um, looking for that attention for men. And so I kind of, was confused about it. Like maybe I shouldn't have said nothing. And so in my junior high um, years, the teacher in my school was like, there's something going on with this child. Um, you know, she's falling asleep in class too much. Um, what's going on at home? So her concern was to ask me questions, just kind of like, you know, you and I are having this conversation. And my normality was to tell the truth and be like, well, you know, I'm not getting enough sleep at home. Um, one of my uncles was having to pay me visits at night. And I didn't know by disclosing that information, they were going to call CPS, get everyone involved, and then addressing the issue to my parents. And so what happened was my mother got really angry at me because she said that what happens at home, you should never bring it outside and tell anybody about it. It turned out that the system removed us away from the home. Me and my youngest sister, my brother wasn't in the picture anymore. He had to leave. He um, he decided to not deal with my parents anymore because he was also being uh, physically abused by my mother. Like his, My mother's discipline was more brutal than anything. Like her way of feeling like discipline was not like a normal disciplined parent. It was more like throwing plates at us, you know, being harsh. And so he kind of had enough and was like, I'm, I'm ready to go. Anyway, so two years later, um, my mom fought for custody to get us back. And the only person that really didn't have uh, a clean slate was my stepfather. So my stepfather stepped in the picture and said that he would um, 
you know, claim to um, to step in and take care of us. Well, in, the, in that time, I didn't want to complain about what we he doing already or attempting to do. So I kind of kept my mouth shut because I had already experienced a bad experience about the fact that when I try to make an attempt of being honest about my my uncle, my mom was already disagreeing how I took the situation into my hands and reported it. So this time with my stepfather, once he started like um, manipulating me as like, you know, you're not my daughter. And the only reason you're home is because I took it upon myself to tell the judge that I would be responsible to call you back into our home. And so they're not going to believe you if you tell them what I'm doing to you. And I became overprotective over my youngest sister. And what I mean by that is like, I did not want him closer to my sister. I didn't want her changing the diapers. So I jumped into this role as like, my mother was never home. So I cooked, I washed dishes, I make sure I did the grocery list. And so I learned these different um, bargaining like labels. I know the the names to those things, but as a young kid, I didn't know that I, that was the behavior that I was contributing to. How, and uh, Nilda, how old were you at the time? I was already nine turning 10, which I was already like learning how to bargain with my stepfather. So when he would teach me how to have oral sex with him, he would like tell me, um, come here and go to the room with me. And I would be like, um, well, you know, we need groceries in the house. And he'd be like, okay, um, how much money do you want for the groceries? And so I started soliciting the fact that he would pay me and I would give him sexual favors. But because he would manipulate me and tell me that my mom wouldn't believe a single word if I told her that I was having sex with him. And and it was true. My mom was so blind to it that she wouldn't have ever even crossed her mind that he was sleeping with me or having that oral sex with me. Um, and so this went on for maybe four years. So my mindset was like, I need to get out of this situation. I'm angry. I'm mad. I hate my life. But I need to hurry up and go to school and finish school so I can leave this shithole. I was so angry at my mom. Um, my anger turned into rage. And I was just like, I can't believe this is just like happening in, a, in this environment. And then I can't escape. I can't leave out of this just filth. And so um, my sister's getting older. She's seven years old. I'm having to take her to school. And I have to go to school myself. So this is irresponsibility that just was like put in my lap. And so I feel like now I just have to complete this mission to make sure that my sister's old enough to talk and sort of like uh, speak for herself. So now I'm in high school, I'm getting older, I'm dressing up a little different and I start pushing and shifting myself towards school, which means that I'm out of, out of my house by 6.30 
and I'm out of, out of there till seven o'clock at nighttime, which means I'm also taking nice classes so that I can complete high school by the time I'm 17 because I want to get out of school as fast as I can. And how are you doing in school? Like, were you getting good grades? So um, I excelled pretty fast. I was an honor student and I was trying to enroll as many programs. I became a tutor class um, student so I can be more in school than in, in my own home so that I can hurry up and complete my classes and um, I have a couple of honor um, listing. I got into programs. I wanted to help so many students just to accomplish goals and, you know, just get out of class, um, out of my own home. So when I was in my senior year, uh, I experienced a traumatic event in high school, um, right before high graduation. Um, I think one of the teachers kind of like, really single me out in class. Uh, we were working in this trolley for the community and we had to like build in computer graphics. So one day I asked him, you know, I asked him, excuse me, can we about my high school credits? Um, I needed so that I can count on that class and the school credits so that I'm able count on that so that this year I can graduate and call it a day and get a job because I started applying for a night school <clears throat> job. And he said, yeah, let's check in with me at lunchtime. And so as a student, I went ahead and, you know, checked in at lunchtime. As I went into his classroom, he opened a briefcase, he added my hours, and all he said was, you're short four hours to complete the night classes for me to give you a full complete credits. And I said, well, um, I'm taking, I'm working at additional hours. So is it possible that you can give me some assignments so that I can do the assignment and give me my credits? He turned around and he said, you know, there's other ways you can just go ahead and give me uh, you can give me head and I can just give you the class. I can pass you the class. And I looked at him and I said, excuse me? You're asking me for what? And I think my reaction threw him off guard because he did that with other students. He got, he smoked weed. He chilled with other classmates, but he never thought that I would reject his oppose. So my reaction to his um, his request, um, he messed up. In other words, he he didn't re he didn't think that I was gonna object to his request. So I turned around with my backpack and I was gonna storm out. But the the material that we have in our classroom, it's um, sort of like you have to account for it before you leave. So you can't just like walk out and and leave, you have to key the door and then let the student out. So I'm stuck in the class. We start having a, uh, an argument. And then that's when he assaulted me. He assaulted me. He did not want to leave me. He's like, you're not going to tell the, the principal. And um, I start 
fighting him. And I say, you're not going to take advantage of me. This is what I did not come here for. I came here to talk about some credits. And he ended up getting arrested for that. The school found out that he had over 38 cases of sexual assault. And they still allow him to teach in that school. I fell into depression. I felt embarrassed because he was an African-American man. I didn't know how to talk about it. This was the first time I had ever been in the media. So I was put on the spotlight. Uh, all of a sudden, my magical family wants to do something about it. And I'm confused because this whole time I'm thinking it's been happening underneath your faces. It's been happening all along. Why do you guys give a shit about it now? Why does it matter? It's been ongoing all these years in front of your faces. Why is this case so important? Like, why does it matter all of a sudden? Um, and I didn't understand what law meant, like the law, the civil case, the money that was involved in this situation. I was very naive to all that. I was just like um, involved with therapy, um, with depressing medication. And this was like um, nine months prior to my crime. So this is why I, I think it's significant that I share this to you guys because of the length of time that it that it escalated. It's how soon that it happened between the time that I got involved in the relationship. So the teacher goes to prison. He gets his license revoked. I end up falling into depression. I end up being stuck in this front mindset that I don't want to go back to school. I don't want to see a therapist. I don't want to talk to people. And everybody just wants to ask me what happened. How did it happen? You know, details. Like, And I was just like so felt betrayed by the system in school because that was my only escape to feel safe. And I wasn't safe there anymore. So I had to find something else to do. And then now I have the stepfather who is just like, you know, still doing his thing and I'm just like rejectful. Like I'm feeling hopeless because now my goal that I was initially in my head that I was gonna leave home to make the success to go to work and make my own home was like destroyed. So now my, my story's being blown in the news because now that this teacher is exposed I I try to work it through and I say, no, I have to go to school. I have to make it. I don't care if the situation just happened. So I signed up for Los Angeles City College. And I, I like, I don't care. I'm just like, I have to try. I can't let this situation like literal, literally like destroy me. So I signed up for school for a semester and I give myself like at least two weeks to sign up. And um I keep trying, and I know that it's going to mess with me, but I have to. So I went ahead and seen the therapist. The, set, the therapist gave me, like, a whole bunch of pills, and I just tried to live life the best that I could in 
the couple of weeks that this situation happened, my family tried to be supported. I just like let them deal with it as best as they could. So there was this one guy in college that was really empathetic and he was like, Hey, I heard what happened. I just want you to know that maybe if we go out and um, you distract yourself, maybe that would be helpful for you. And, you know, and so I shared with him, I was just very stupid. I don't know why I did when confining someone that I just met. I didn't know who he was. I just said, you know what? I just need to get out of the house that I live. I need to get on my own. I don't want to live there no more. Um, this is what I'm going through. And I want to start over. And it is not where I am at. I need to move out. I need to start fresh. And he heard my story. He's like, you know what? That sounds like a brilliant idea. I have a job. I make enough money. Lies. <laughs> I didn't find this out till like maybe three months until I moved in with him. He was a drug dealer. You know, a drug dealer that sold me a dream. He's like, I have my own house. Yeah, right. He lived in a squatter. A squatter home is a place where the bank gives you a place so you can babysit so nobody else can vandalize the place. And I didn't know none of this because I was so dumb. I was like stuck in a world where I didn't think people lie. I thought people lived diligently that they would just, you know, want to help you. And so I go and I brushed the process. I moved in with him. He was so romantic. He was always helping me, buy me flowers, establish me. The place looks so nice. And I was questioning, like, why is there not fully furnished? Why is everything so empty? But to me, it was away from my stepfather. It was away from a horrific family. I didn't question it. I said, fine. If this is a starting over point. Now we're in four months right after the, the situation with my high school teacher. And the situation is starting to turn downhill. And what I mean by that is the relationship with this new person. I have my own car. I have my own phone. Um... I started to go back to school. I started seeing my therapist. But he's now telling me, you can't wear that. You can't have friends. You can't have a communication with your family. You can't even go out and spend, you know, money. And I'm thinking, like, why? Why can I do that? Because he's trying to control my finances. He's trying to control my car. He's trying to eliminate everything else out of that circle. And I didn't understand the under, like, I didn't understand why. He's like, oh no, you, you, you have to, you know, downsize your circle because now people are gonna be trying to befriend you because of what you have. And and he would always try to manipulate that. Like, you gotta be careful, you gotta be mindful of. The people that you you invite in your circle but all along he was just a manipulator a liar and all he wanted was to try to make sure 
that he was the only one getting into that that money. Eventually, he started allowing me to get addicted to drugs. And by feeding me that drug, he had better control of me. Now we're talking six months into the relationship. And by that, he would start hitting me. And it was like, I went from being at home with my mother who would beat me and I would watch her be in a relationship with her boyfriend who would abuse her and hit her and she would stay to modeling in this relationship with this boyfriend and being in the same situation as my mother. And I felt like, how how did I end up in the same cycle? How did I invite someone in my life not knowing anything about him, you know? And can't even end it, can't even reach out to help. And so it's just, it was feeling helpless. I couldn't even tell anybody because now I felt like I got myself in this situation. I would go to school and I had to wear like long sleeves because I had bruising on my arms. I was afraid to make any reports because to me, I was like, oh, um, I don't know how to deal with the situation. My mom never taught me, you, you know, you have to reach out to somebody about this. Mm, many times I wanted to call her to tell her, but then I was afraid to worry her, you know, so I started losing weight. Um, I started losing my self-esteem. Um, I didn't know about domestic violence uh, programs. Um, I started feeling confused about um, mixing my depression medication and, um, you know, like numbing myself. Um, I was so lost that I started thinking about suicide. You know, I wanted to end my life for the first time. Um, I felt like what was truly my purpose. And I did never have a role model figure, like a father figure. And that I felt like I kept just getting in the cycle of, of a relationship seeking for a father. And then... Um, so what was that? You said you, you, you got into this cycle. How long were you with your boyfriend at the time? And did, did it just spiral out of control pretty quickly? And did, did other people know about what was, what was going on? So, um, so then um, this only lasted nine months. Nine months. Um, and there was uh, several people in this, in this town um that really noticed it and they reached out to me there was a friend of ours named noe and him he was a christian man who got involved and he asked you know you need to leave this relationship alone you need to just try to get involved in christianity you need to get um yourself you know away from this relationship by me getting other people involved 
and listening to other advices. I was being accused of cheating. I was being accused of um, sort of stepping in and out of the relationship. So um, unfortunately, there was always consequences. Um, there was always like, oh, you know, what are you doing sleeping around? And come here, get undressed. What did he give you? Did, did, did he give you another phone? You know, it was always that mistrust. And I felt like I would always get other people in trouble. So um, that caused problems, fighting. Um, I would always get beaten for it. And then afterwards, there was um, repercussions for that. So I got fed up. Um, eventually, um, I would fight back. But I never could win any battles. I knew that at some point, this situation was only escalating to worse. Um, when I found out that he came to, because one day I came and my stuff was gone, he lied to me and said that they came and robbed the place. And I said, how is it that they robbed the place and it's just all my stuff is gone? You know, and your stuff is still here. And so I started catching on to things like that. And um, pretty much he had already premeditated that he was just going to eliminate me out of the picture. And um, he had two ditches in the back. And one of those things that looked like burials. So all my stuff, they found buried. Like all my materialistic, like cosmetics, clothing, um uh, my um, clothing, like blankets, everything was like in um, black bags. And he had literally put them in the trash bags and just buried it. Um, I had an, a cat as a, um, an animal, like a little cat. And um, <clears throat> one day um, I wanted to go out and just sort of like leave. And um, he did something to my car. I don't know if he took off the brakes or he unhooked um, something to the engine and my car wouldn't start. So he's like, um, you were thinking of leaving? And I'm like, well, I just wanted to go somewhere so I can just get out of the house for a little bit. And so he's like, here, come on, let's go. I'll take you. So for the type of job that he did as a drug addict, um, drug dealing or whatever, he took me in his taxi. And I had my cat with me and I was just like kind of sort of petting it and stuff. And we were driving and as we were driving around, um, we started arguing about um, money, finances, you know, who was talking to, to who about this friend, Noe, because he was inviting me to church. And we were literally going like 30, 40 miles on the street and it was something that I said in aspect to Noe about him inviting me to church and he was disagreeing about it. He literally opened the front of the passenger seat and he's like, well, if you like to be hanging around with ministry and church and you want to go with him, why don't you just get out of the car and get the fuck out of here? And he opened the passenger and kicked me out of the car as it was moving. And I said, 
to me, I was like, who in the right mind would say something or push someone out of the car with a cat, an animal? At first, I thought he was just like trying to put fear to me. But to get to the point of just doing so, like with that intention, that I had enough, you know, I had felt like that was enough. So I think that that was my point, breaking point to like calling my mom. And um, we fell out, we literally got kicked out of the car with me and my cat. And so I, I don't know, he kept going in the taxi. And um, I got to like some street corner and there were still public phones then. So I called my mom and like crying because I was scraped up and and I just called my mom and she was just like, where are you? Give me the address where you are. I'll go pick you up. And this is the, po- the first time my mom says, let's just call the cops. Let's just call and make a report. You know, we can help. We can just make a report. And but I was so afraid. I was like so conditioned in my head that I was like, I don't want to do anything. I don't even want to call anyone because he's going to come after me. You know, he's going to come get me. I was so conditioned in the mind that he knew where I live. He knew where to find me. He knew that he would come and get me. And that was the end of me. So my mom just sort of got me and took me back home to her home. Um, I don't know what he did in my head that I was just like stuck, traumatized. Like I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to, um, like, I didn't want to, I was so afraid. I was so afraid to even call anyone for help. And so two weeks later, um, he goes to my mom's house and drags me out. Like, like he has that authority. And then that's into those two weeks um my mother knew that it was going to be the last time she seen me um i didn't know that that was going to be my breaking point my cat ended up um staying at my mom's house um but that cat went through so much <laughs> and i feel like she passed away <laughs> like a week right before I got arrested. And um, I don't know, it was like so many different signs for me to to acknowledge that it was coming to an end. And I still didn't know how to like break that cycle. I told my mom what was going on, but I didn't tell her everything. Um, because I feel like she couldn't help me. She was in the same situation herself. And um, I wish, and I feel like we were both trapped and I couldn't like really talk to her more about how she could help me when she was in the same situation, you know? So I'm back in this damn situation, back all over again. I'm dragged into this home. Now I have nothing. And he says, if you do that again, you're never going to see your family. And so um, I'm without a job. I'm without a medication. Um, And this time, it's um, we're back to selling drugs. 
And this time I'm like, I don't even want to sell nothing anymore. I just want to, I want to quit. I want to just, I want to give up. And um, it happens in the middle of the night when it's three o'clock. Um, I'm just laying there and I, and I, and I tell myself, it has to be something more than this. I'm tired of it. I, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, and he gets up and he starts tripping. He starts telling me, I know what you did. I know that while you were gone with your mom, you were with someone else. And he doesn't let it go. So he grabs me. He throws a glass at me and he starts telling me that the guy that is in front of our home, Noe, is the guy who assaulted the the guy who um, I was sleeping with. So he goes in front of his motorhome and he wants to talk to him in the middle of the night, three o'clock. So, so Nilda, so so winds up happening. It kind of this kind of like a culmination of abuse over time, and and this this is the conflict that ended up. It resulting in his death, correct? Yes. And when that happened, um, did the police come? To, how did the police get notified? Did they come to your house afterwards, or uh, how did this all happen? And then you got arrested, and how did how did that transpire after? Um, I know you and him, him had a conflict, which resulted in his death. How did how did the police come and arrest you? How did this all go down? So this is what happened. Um the family of the victim came looking for for Noe and they said, Have you seen our brother? And I said, No, I haven't seen him. And they did a warrant search. And so when I seen that they were looking for him, I left the scene. I took off and then this this is where when they started doing the investigation they found his body laying in in a different county which was in Los Angeles and then they connected it back to you and when you were arrested and you went to the trial how long did that trial go on for? And then they ended up sentencing you to how many years? So they ended up sentencing me to 27 years to life because they were so um, determined that this was premeditated. And I said it wasn't. I did not intend to kill someone. I did not plot to kill it. I. It was something that came to an accident. I was fighting for my life. I wanted to self-defend myself. I wasn't seeing the person anymore. I was trying to defend my life. And so you got so you got the 25 years to life and then um did that time get reduced later? Yes. So then so I know that was an issue because um, you weren't able to um, bring up a lot of the stuff that happened. And so a couple of things, how, what was that time in prison like for you? 
Yes. So that time in prison, I went there when I was 18 years old. And because I'm a first offender, um, I didn't have no experience. I didn't know what in prison was like. And so I had a lot of different difficulties adjusting. Um, I endure a lot of obstacles and, you know, being in prison, I had to adjust to the environment there. Um, I had been assaulted. I had been, you know, learning the, the living status there was very different. Um, I had to learn to be raised by different women in there. Uh, I had to learn different trades. Um, and I was very, you know, um, I had to learn everything all over again, how to live. And I didn't know a lot of things out here either, but in there I had to condition myself to different things, how to cook, how to survive, how to, um, basically how to determine to accept these new sentencings. Um, there was two different options. Either I was going to change my life to have a hope that I was going to get out or accept that I wasn't just going to mess up my life and never get out and just continue to just accept what the law had given me, you know? Yeah. And at what point did you decide I have to focus on turning my life around and what was that process like for you and how did you come to like uh, some type of insight into, into into accepting what happened like what what was that like that experience for you I turned 25 years old and um I really wanted to go back to school do something with my life and even if it was inside prison, um, and even if I didn't get out, I wanted to do something better, you know, than just sit around and let time pass me. Um, I knew that there was a lot of programs and a lot of things um, being offered inside prison. And so I said to myself, let me study law. Let me study, start with myself and see what bills are starting to come in effect and see if that would be an offered opportunity for myself to um, give myself a chance to think that this could apply for me. And hopefully um, I can start there. Was there anything that gave you hope inside? Like, was there anybody that you connected with inside that, that gave you the drive to, you know what, I not give up because like you said you could have been in there your whole life and what kind of turned that around for you i mean was there a point where like you know did you ever think to yourself oh my god i'm never gonna get out or did you because you went in when you were 18 i mean did you what what's inside of you that that gave you that fire to say you know what i want more and i'm not going to give up yes yeah, so i started off with a bunch of girls like i want to say maybe 15 of us that were the same age. And we all, I want to say, maybe nine of us, the rest 
committed suicide and nine of us only made it out and for the other ones that's what kept me hope that um the ones that survived um kept me hope that we will be strong enough for the rest of the ones that didn't make it that we could make a difference and continue pushing through for the women that are still fighting to get home so what kind of like what kind did you do some programs inside what what kind of things did you do inside that was helpful for you? We did LTOP, the life, um, the LTOP programs. We did, I did a lot of, um, they have programs like Feather River College. That made me feel part of like, I was a real human being, you know, doing community college. Um, there was also a lot of um, vocational programs. Um, doing computer that made me feel also part of like I have a computer I can actually learn how to type um, uh, peer health community college um, I did the peer health for five years hospice hospice also helped me feel connected to having the remorse that I understood the insight to my crime um, connecting and volunteering inside prison, um, going to death row, um, programs that connected me with people that are inside a jail. Um, because, you know, you think of a prison, like, okay, it's just a prison, but there is also death row inside. You know, it's very small population, but it still connects you with people who are really, are in a harder situation than yourself. And then when did you get your, your sentence reduced and how did you, how did you go about that? So my sentence reduced happened in 2012 and that happened due to SB 260 when your crime happened in the juvenile, when let's say you're under 18 or between the ages from 25 and under and you're basically science says that your brain wasn't developedly developed all the way and you weren't able to make a decision um according to them that you can't really call or make a this dis a, dis a right decision like an adult and so the way that it was explained to us is that the, the adult gets to make a rightful decision and a juvenile doesn't, they think like a scared person, like a child and they flee from the scene, you know? And so because of this bill to 60, it helped reduce my sentence to 17 years to life. So they took a big chunk of that sentence and pushed me closer to board. And going to board, um, I had to face a panel of people and they had to decide whether or not by hearing my case, I was fully prepared to go back into society. And so know, how, how old, so how old were you 
uh, when you actually left prison. Like I said, John, you're no longer, you're totally free now. You, I know you're not under any supervision from anybody. You're a free woman. But the question, how old were you? So you went in when you were 18 and, and you and you got out when, how old were you when you got out? I was 34. And the question I have when you came out, what was that transition like for you? And was it a difficult transition? And did you have felt like you were a different person than when you went in? And were you prepared for what the world had changed in that time? So what was that like for you? Absolutely. That transition was absolutely difficult because when I went in, they had pagers. And um, when I got out, they had something that talks back to you. <laughs> it's called cell phones and Siri and um, and talks, I mean, cars that drive on their own. And I mean, I had a license even, even though I didn't know how to drive. <laughs> I studied the manual and I was like, go pick up your driver's license. I'm like, no, wait, I still need to look, I need someone to, to drive me. <laughs> and so it was very harsh, the transition, um, because I didn't know how to manage keys. I didn't know how to manage um, how to, I, I was still waiting for someone to tell me, go get your food, you know? I was still conditioned for child time. I was still conditioned um, for for someone to open the door for me. I was still conditioned to, you know, wear my three uniforms a day, which is my blue outfit. Um, so I had to like learn to to prepare um, in a big world where you're not told any of those things anymore I had to um slowly but surely um wake up and do those things on my own I had to tell Siri what my schedule was so that she could tell me what to do and prepare my day as a planner so that I wouldn't miss work or my schedules so and I know that I know you're you're always such a hopeful joyful person I um, you know, you're involved with a lot of community organizations and you're always doing volunteer work and you're always giving back. And um, I know you're very dedicated to giving back to the community. What made you such a energetic and hopeful person given all that you went through? I don't ever want to forget, you know, my past. My past is what defines what happened and where I came from and the hardships that it took for me to get back on my feet. Um, and the survivor's guilt, you know, I, every day I wake up, I feel like it's, it's a new beginning. Um, and I feel it's a gift that I'm still alive. And, um, and I always want to share to anyone. And every day I work in that field with women who are still struggling how to walk away with domestic violence. And it's very difficult seeing them go back. You know, and I always bring it 
bring it up. I say, you know, it's that honeymoon stage. I know that, you know, it's it's very conflict when especially you have children. Um, I'm lucky I didn't have any children, but I do have a family I would have left behind, and that's my mother. Um, and I think it's it's um, for anybody, a mother, a daughter, or a father that is listening today, you know, um, I would hate anybody who's going through that situation to, um, to endure that, yeah. What was it like the first time you went to a restaurant or he had a, you know, sat down and had like a, a fresh cooked meal that wasn't, you know, prepared for you in a prison? What was that like for you? And was it difficult for you to build relationships with people given what, what had happened to you in the past? Yes, it was very different and very difficult because, um, you know, I look at the meal and um, <laughs> I have a hard time eating with metal. <laughs> I still like plastic spoons. <laughs> and so sometimes I'm very shy eating around people. And so I I don't know if they still notice that um, my flaws of eating with a plastic spoon. I kind of like look around to see if they know that I'm a little different. So and I, that's it. And I know that what I, one of the things I love about your story also is that you've made amends with, you know, um, the family that yeah. you were, the family that, uh, was also impacted by what happened, and um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really amazing that you've both come together to a, like a healing place. Yeah, they're also they're also there. Um, we're in a movement of forgiveness, and they um, they love that. Um, I share my story with others and they're both Christians and that they give me the permission to go on and, you know, share this impactful story because, you know, they want people to turn to God and they want people, you know, to hear this. It's a testimony for them. And how, how does it feel for you um, when you go to the community and you have so many people, people that look up to you because of your strength and you know all the strength it took for you to get out there's so many women that are in prison and their stories aren't heard because i think there's such a small percentage of people of our population um that are females that are in prison compared to the male population um how does it feel to go back and speak to these women because like i said you're you're even at uc berkeley so i'm sure you're interacting with people and you tell people your story are they are they shocked by it or Yes, a lot of women get shocked when they hear the story because they're more like, um, you know, they they haven't heard something as real as this, especially normally it's like, why haven't you wrote a story or book or why haven't we seen your movie? Um, and I'm working on the process of that. Um, 
I'm trying to get connections. I want people and everyone in this world to, you know, get this on video and want it, um, especially on books. I think it's very powerful. Um, it, it can get the message. Um, yeah. Let me ask. Let me ask you. I, I know you just you recently um, got a home, and um, how does it feel? I mean, you, you saved. Uh, you saved. I know you got a job because, like I said, you're working. You're working in different community organizations. You saved money. Uh, you saved over sixty thousand dollars, and you got your own place. How did it feel when you first walked into your 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 own place? Did it feel weird for you and I know it was a very emotional. I see you're getting emotional now too. Uh, when you think about it, it, it in, a, in a joyful way, um, how did that feel for you? Did you ever feel like you were ever going to be able to get your own place and, and just to build a life? You know, Martin. I don't know if you have heard me share from the beginning of this story that all along I've been wanting my place since a kid a safe place. I just wanted my own home, a place where I felt peace, love, and just, you know, a place where I can just find serenity. And I finally have it. I finally walked in and, you know, I can have that, that joy. And um, I have my dog. <laughs> I heard a dog back there somewhere. I, I don't know if you have so, a dog too. So, but so I love it. I love it. I'm just like, oh my God, I get to run around, go up the stairs. I'm like a kid in the freaking big giant house. So yeah. let me ask you this, Nilda. If you were to look back now, what would the Nilda of today, advice wise, if you could go back in time, give yourself advice when you were a teenager, what advice would you give yourself? The advice is, um, I was trying to rush through life so fast. And, um, you know, I was trying to grow up fast. I was trying to um, get through my young self to get to this point really fast on my own, you know? Well, let me ask you this. I know you probably have a long list of these. So <laughs> um, you have to tell me, um, what are your, like, what are your future goals? Cause I know you got a lot of them. So give me, give me four or five future goals you have. Let me tell you my future goals, the five year goal plan that I had for Pearl done. I completed it. I completed it. So I have to create another five-year goal plan. So uh, my goal is just to complete my license for therapy. I just want to help people. Five-year goal plan is just to get my master's degree in sociology with my therapy license. So I want to help women like myself. Yes. And then uh, tell me what your guilty pleasure is food-wise. Oh. Food-wise, mm, I can't seem to stop eating uh, aguachiles. <laughs> now you have to explain what that is. 
Our chiles is this Mexican hot chiles with some shrimp on top of um, some cucumbers. And it's so good. My mom taught me how to make it. <laughs> uh, and you, what is your favorite kind of music? I love classical music. If you could be a superhero, who? what superhero would that be? Oh, my God. I would be the girl. Um, uh, the girl. Let me see. What's her name? <laughs> you put me on the spot. Uh, a warrior? Um, and then... This superhero girl. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and if you could, if you could be, um, or actually, if you could meet one person in your life um, that's had an impact on you, and it could be from any time period, who would that be, and what would you say to them? Mm -hmm. Samuel Hyatt. What would you say? I want you to be me. In my acting character. Yes, I want her to play me. And uh, if when you look back on life, um, when you look back on your life, what do you want to be remembered for? Not for the victim uh, challenges that I have, but for the things that I have overcome as a survivor. Yeah. And what advice would you give people out there that are struggling with challenges? And if you could give them some advice on what to do to get through those challenges and come out stronger, what would that advice be? Don't look, don't lose hope. You know, don't lose hope. Well, that's good advice, and um, you've done. You're doing amazing things, and thank you for all the all the following your passions and you know giving back to the community as much as you are. And thank you so much for giving your story today. I know it's not easy to go through this journey again. Yeah. Over the last hour, but it's just it's, it inspires people that you know you can get through all these things. And you can still be a better person in the end and just keep growing and keep growing. So I really, really, really appreciate you being here. And uh, and I want to thank all my listeners. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, give it a thumbs up. And uh, as I said, Nilda is, uh, has many stories about her online. And, uh, and uh, we're looking forward to your, your movie in the future as well. And I uh, hope Selma will take this take this uh, project on but thank you so much Nilda for being here until next time everyone keep learning take care